science fiction looks tame and reality looks bizarre how do you keep your feet on the ground weighed down with heavy doses of the truth i suppose and where do you get that truth well i'll tell you right here we're tnn the truth news network and your roadmap into tomorrow is dan newman did he just call me a roadmap come on pete we're supposed to be friends (laughs) good morning everybody Welcome to Tuesday. We are already 24 days into the month of October. My gosh, time flies, doesn't it? But as it flies along, so do things that are happening in our lives and in the lives of billions of other people on this planet. We share all of our atmosphere, all the things that happen on Earth. We share it with billions of fellow Citizens of the globe, citizens of the world, whatever you want to call it. We don't live in a vacuum, but sometimes we get caught up in thinking about ourselves, our world right around us instead of our our world all around the world. You know what I'm referencing. We need to be open and honest with everything, about everything, and be diligent on a lot of different fronts. It's a tough full-time job. Nobody can say otherwise. If you do, you're either ball face lying or you just don't have a clue about life, right? Well, we have many, many, many things to bring to you today. Some things are going to shock you. And don't forget in our second hour today, our buddy Steve Baker joins us. Communicated with him just minutes ago and he's excited. I asked him if he had any goodies for us. And he just kind of (laughs) smiled. That means he does. So he'll be with us at the top of the hour. Between now and then, I listened and watched to one of the most stirring interviews that I've ever heard or saw last night. And we're going to, in the first hour of our show today, bring part of that interview with you. And so just to set you up and so you understand how big a deal it is, it's Tucker Carlson. We all know that, especially in today's world, when Tucker interviews somebody, it's a big deal. And whoever he's interviewing has some real big, important things to talk to Tucker about. And of course, us. We have that, a whole lot more, and Steve Baker. Wow, a full day at TNN Live. We're going to get cranking in just a couple of minutes.
world about the time the Bee Gees were out doing this song. Man, this was one of the hottest songs on earth at the time. My goodness, it was the disco era. That was at the turn of the 70s into the 80s. And man, music was good back then. Now, don't get me wrong. Music is still good. It's a matter of choice today, just like it always has been. And I've never been a big BG fan. I like the Gibbs brothers that made up the BGs. I like some of their individual things too. I just like that kind of music where there's a lot of harmony and a lot of music. Uh, my good friend, <laughs> James Posey, he sent me a text and uh, in the middle of the text, he said this. He said, doing that Saturday night dance thing. And it's emoji <laughs> of John Travolta. Remember doing it from the movie. Oh, my gosh. Only James Posey would come up with that. But at least we're finding the lighter side of a few things going on because it could be all nasty and negative. We don't, we don't want to go there. We don't want to think about it being all negative. So Steve Baker will join us at the top of the second hour. Between now and then, I've got some things I I want you to hear. And it's not just me talking to you. I want you to hear from some people that really know a lot of things about what's going on. And I think it's important that we share those things. We're going to get into that in just a second. But we've got this House Speaker fight thing going on. And you remember the debacle that happened when... Uh, that uh, representative down from Florida, Florida Gates, Matt Gates, he's the one that brought that motion to vacate the House Speaker spot. He started this whole thing three weeks ago, and it's really getting ugly in the House of Representatives. And let me just say this about what this fight is doing three weeks into it. We have much legislation that needs to be worked on and passed. We don't send these people up there to do what they're doing right now. That's a deal inside of the House of Representatives. The people had nothing to do with it. There's nothing in law that identifies, creates, or identifies the process that they choose to go through to pick their leaders. They do this. The House of Representatives is doing this. And it's not the Democrats in the House of Representatives. It's the Republicans. So a lot of people are asking this question now, three weeks into this charade, what's the real reason why Kevin McCarthy has not been replaced yet? Over the past 10 months, I'm going to tell you a few things. Some strange coalitions have been built and dispersed. Candidates have risen and fallen. Of course, that always happens. And private animosities have burst into public view. We're seeing what's going on now. While the D.C. legacy media press has proven itself incapable of, of explaining any of the question I just asked, what the heck is going on? The squabbling among Republicans has clarified just how cracked up the Republican Party truly is. Not a good time to go down this road either. We've got an election just about a year away, and we're supposed to show as conservatives that we're united, right? The grand old party, the GOP, they've long suffered from misalignment with its donor class and leadership, holding completely different priorities from you and me, the voters, and actually 
actual conservative members. This misalignment has been steadily widening for decades, but today, with some members openly calling on Republicans to align with Democrats just to keep the money flowing, it's clear the Republican Party's spine is broken. Those members just successfully derailed Jim Jordan's campaign for the Speakership of the House. He's one of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives. He's a fixture in conservative circles and has been for over a decade. He co-founded the conservative House Freedom Caucus in 2015, two years after Republican leadership co-opted the once conservative Republican Studies Conference. When then-Speaker John Boehner iced conservatives out of his ruling coalition, Jim Jordan joined a successful effort to oust Boehner as the party leader. John Boehner, just so you know it, was not a real conservative. And by the way, his standby, the guy that worked for him and got into leadership in the Republican Party in the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan, a failed run as vice president for Mitt Romney when they ran against Barack and Joe. Remember that? Paul Ryan, two years into the Trump presidency, he just decided, I'm going to quit. These people are too conservative for me. And so what did he do? He didn't even run for re-election. He decided to take a big job at Fox News. Since those combative, very, very combative early years, Jim Jordan's become a team player with House leadership. He earned the rank position on the Oversight Committee when Democrats had the majority there, eventually landing the chairmanship of the powerful Judiciary Committee. He became an ally to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, able to hold sway with the very conservative members of the GOP, while maintaining productive relationships with House leadership. That's why McCarthy publicly backed Jordan in a speech on Friday to take the job that he was ousted from. Still, even that move wasn't good enough for the roughly two dozen Republicans who blocked Jordan's speakership. While some simply held a grudge over past personalities and battles, the big reason was Jordan's friendliness with the Republican right. Would he have kept the money rolling for the establishment, or would he have proven difficult for the appropriators to control? Those are the two big questions that need answers, and I think we have them. While anger over the tanking of Representative Steve Scalise's run for speaker was obvious, the true interest of these establishment Republicans and the major donors who share their worries were apparent in the headlines, like from Reuters, U.S. Republican Speaker nominee Jordan known as Ukraine aid skeptic. And from Bloomberg, Jordan's lack of ties to business world making lobbyists nervous. In Washington this year, these doubts constitute a black mark. Damn the wishes of actual Republican voters. And to be clear, since the drama over McCarthy's replacement began two weeks ago, Republican voters made their wishes known. What are you saying, Dan? Republican caucus members don't care about the wishes of the public? 
That's a question you got to answer. In the days after Jordan's nomination by the GOP conference, small-dollar donations poured into the Republican coffers. Just as angry phone calls and emails poured into the offices of those Republicans who voted against him. Those Republicans whined of intimidation internally, pressuring Jordan to condemn the attacks as if he was ordering mean text and phone calls to their offices from random Americans. He obliged and condemned the attacks. Those Republicans balked at changing their position on him and proposed a deal to have a speaker temporary through the end of the year. In short, they would rather the speakership remain vacant than elect Jim Jordan. They would rather break Congress than elevate somebody they're not confident they can control. Not that can lead, but that they can control. They believe money for Ukraine and other business-as-usual items are worth permanent institutional damage. And don't be fooled. A speaker tempore is anything but temporary. In our fractured system, where the legislative branch has outright refused to fulfill basic duties, temporary patches have a way of becoming permanent. That's why Congress has passed continuing resolutions in omnibuses instead of real budgets for 27 years. That's why in a party as ideological disparate as the GOP, a speaker tempore wielding all the power of a speaker could become standard fare, maybe become the normal way to run. In any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, far-left New York Democrat Representative AOC observed in a January 2020 interview. But in America, we are. The same holds true for the conservative wing of the GOP and the Republican appropriators opposite them. As those small-dollar donors and populist candidates continue to displace traditional party power, these schisms will only continue to grow. Do you think, does anybody think, that 2023 will be the last year Washington politicians, be Republican or Democrat, fail to agree on a speaker? that this will be the last time D.C. ignores the lawmaker whom the voters want to see in charge, the last time D.C. is tempted to put a Band-Aid on cracking glass? Why take the wheel when autopilot keeps the money flowing to special interest? And therein lies the incentive for placing the House in the hands of a temporary Republican leader indefinitely. Oh, sure, there's a sweet revenge against the enemies of Scalise. And sure, yes, Representative Matt Gates is denied a win. But more importantly, appropriators on both sides of the aisle always win when no one's taking control. Quid pro quo, status quo. Let's keep everything the same and bend and bow to the givers of the money. Things like defense reauthorization, continuing resolutions, omnibuses thrive when there's weak leadership. 
fights against abortion, illegal immigration, and forever funding of foreign wars, the fights the Republican base actually want to see fought, they will never be priorities under a temporary leader. First and foremost, a hollowed-out speakership benefits those politicians, those who want to keep the good times rolling for their donors. And it cripples those men and women who come to Washington really wanting to make a difference. That's why so many Republican and Democrat politicians alike want it to happen and are willing to damage the institution of the House of Representatives to do it. The fight over the next Republican House Speaker isn't creating the dysfunction. It's exposing the dysfunction. And it's exposing its loyal patrons. And just so you realize, today, the Republican caucus is back behind closed doors. And if you think they're going to get it figured out today and have a vote and we'll have a House Speaker by tomorrow... Raise your hand. I'm looking around the studio. I don't see a single hand going up in here. You don't see mine going up. And think about this. We've got so many important things that we've got to deal with. American citizens, you know, those of us that work out in the Netherlands, we don't work in Washington, D.C. We don't worry about the politicization that goes on in Washington, D.C. It doesn't apply to us. It applies to those that are caught up in politics rather than caught up in leadership. And many of us, we've had enough of this. Five years ago, I left the Republican Party. I registered, and I'm still registered in Louisiana as an independent. Now, what does that mean? You're not loyal? No, I make campaign contributions, And I make them based on the people I'm giving money to, not on the things or favors I want right now from that person if they win the office they're running for. That's not what I'm doing it for. I don't dare give a dime to anybody that I don't know who they are, that I haven't looked in their rearview mirror, and I haven't talked to a few people that are not their political brothers and sisters, but they're the Americans who are going to live under the leadership of these people if and when they win, and they agree. They know these people personally. It's one thing to know about somebody. It's a whole different story to know somebody. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm referencing there. One of my friends, a friend to this show, Mike Johnson, Congressman Mike Johnson, 4th Congressional District here in Louisiana. He hesitantly, and I know that for a fact, we've had several conversations about this, he hesitantly put his name out there to be considered as House Speaker. And I say hesitantly because he better than you or me knows what comes along with that. Really good leaders, they don't, Now, remember I said really good leaders. They don't want positions so they can have power over other people. The really good ones are hesitant in almost every case because they know there's a massive amount of responsibility and accountability 
that comes with being a leader of any big operation. Just ask Kevin McCarthy that. Do you have any idea what the Republican Party, the caucus of the Republican Party requires of those who have positions of leadership among their party? Kevin McCarthy was, and probably still will be, one of the largest Republican caucus contributor gatherers of all of the Republicans in the House. There is a massive requirement. If you're going to be, I don't know, a minority leader, if you're going to be ahead of one of these big committees, you're required to raise a massive amount of campaign dollars to the Republican caucus while you serve as the head of that committee. And when I say massive amount, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands and sometimes, well, Kevin McCarthy, he raised multiple millions of dollars when he was serving as Speaker of the House. And that was a commitment he made. He knew it was going to be there when he accepted that position. Oh, my gosh. It just gets worse and worse and more complicated. And we have so many moving parts in our nation today. So many moving parts. A little bit later in this hour, And we're already 24 minutes into our first hour. Steve Baker joins us at 10 a.m. Central. That's 11 a.m. Eastern. He's going to be here. Between now and then, I watched one of the most stirring video interviews last night that I've seen in years. And this whole video, this whole conversation was, I think, 27 minutes long. I want you to listen to the first part of that that interview, when we're talking about the important things, the big important matters that our House of Representatives need to be working on instead of infighting to decide who's going to be the boss. Every American needs to watch or listen to this interview. It's an interview held by Tucker Carlson and a general, a U.S. general, retired And it's specifically about what is hanging over the heads of not just America and Americans, but people on every continent that has to do with what is happening today in the Middle East. You want to make sure that you stay here this whole hour. Of course, most of you that come here today You're here specifically, you want to hear what Steve Baker has to bring to us. He's got some fat stuff. (laughs) He texted me earlier today. So get ready for that. But we have a few other things we need to get into. Have you heard the contents of what is included in the hundred million plus? But Joe, it's $100 billion. I don't know why I said that. This latest request that he sent over, supposedly for aid for Ukraine and Israel, but then we find out there's a little more into it than that. Let me let, me let you, it, this is real short. J.D. Vance weighs in. Senator 
J.D. Vance. Here is a breakdown of President Biden's request to Congress for $105 billion more dollars, some of that to go to foreign wars, the border, and Taiwan. The president is asking for more money for Israel, but four times more for Ukraine. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. So there you see the president tying those two wars together. But in response to the president's address last night, a number of Republicans are blasting President Biden, arguing money for Israel and money for Ukraine should not be lumped together. What the president did is completely disgraceful. If he wants to sell the American people on 60 billion more to Ukraine, he shouldn't use dead Israeli children to do it. It was disgusting. I got to be honest. That speech, I watched it live. That speech was one of the worst speeches I've ever heard from anybody that works in the Oval Office. One of the worst, may be the worst. And then I almost vomited multiple times. Yesterday, I was watching some of the Senate confirmation hearings, and several of these senators just oozed about how they got all warm all over because President Biden, he proved he's a real leader. It was one of the worst speeches. You couldn't understand him half the time. He looks like he was about to go to sleep. And it was very obvious that whoever wrote the speech, they had written a speech for Ukraine, about Ukraine. And when Joe Biden said, I need to I need to get before the American people and talk to them about Israel, they added in a few paragraphs about Israel. And when they got the appropriations request, It proved why. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. With everything that's happened the last three weeks, everything, top to bottom, and then you just take a -a peekaboo back and look at all the support money, billions of dollars that we have given Ukraine, and then compare that with the current Israeli situation and the slaughter of thousands of people by Hamas in Gaza, and compare the two right now? Why would Joe Biden come up there and beg for four times as much money for Ukraine as he did for Israel? Why? Do you think it's he feels like Ukraine's a bigger deal? Everybody knows the Israel hatred worldwide. It's the only Jewish state on the planet, the only one. And the anti-Semitism, it's gone way past just anti-Semitism. Look what's happening around your country. Look at what's happening around the world. Death to the Jewish nation. Death to Israelis. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world are in the streets And there are very few non-Jews that are out there supporting Israelis. Now, let me just tell you something about that shows how in the tank this administration is. The Department of Defense yesterday, they made an ambition. It is now having to send back to Israel some of the weapons it sent from its stocks there to Europe for Ukraine. In other words, the Israeli people in Israel 
They are storing weapons that we ask them to store and we're downloading them in Israel and as they're needed elsewhere in Europe, like in Ukraine, we're going to Israel, picking them up, taking them to Ukraine. And now our DOD admitted it's got to go repossess some of those weapons. No, we withdrew 150 shells from the stockpile in Israel for our forces in European command. And now we're sending that back to Israel for their use. That's from a senior defense official. In January, the Pentagon first acknowledged that in order to supply Ukraine with 155 millimeter artillery artillery shells for its ground war with Russia, it dipped into its stockpile that we have in Israel. The stockpile is for U.S. forces in the region, but also for Israel forces in emergency situations, and I think this one could be classified as an emergency, don't you? In the aftermath of those terrorist attacks on October 7th, the U.S. flew more weapons to Israel. The New York Times reported half of the shells in the stockpile in Israel were shipped to Europe earlier this year. But now the Pentagon is admitting some of those weapons are being sent back as Israel prepares for a ground invasion in the Gaza Strip against Hamas. Pentagon folks were vague on the amount being sent back to Israel, but said much of what was sent to Europe has been, quote, redirected and provided to Israeli forces. Last week, one report stated the number of 155-millimeter shells being sent back to Israel were in the tens of thousands. The Pentagon also said the U.S. is assessing its stocks globally to see what could be made readily available for Israel and Ukraine. And, of course, here's what all those people in the military, not the military people, I'm talking about the military spokespeople are saying, So we're going to continue to ensure that Ukraine has what it needs to defend its territory. And at the same time, we're ensuring that Israel has what it needs. Two very different operational environments with different levels of need and consultation. And we're continuing to prioritize both. However, Army leaders have already publicly said they've got concerns about being able to meet demand from both Israel and Ukraine. As was previously reported, Army Secretary Christine Warmoth said earlier this month that without more funding from Congress, it would be difficult to expand weapons production and pay for them. She said one thing's really important in terms of the munitions and our ability to support both potentially the Israelis and the Ukrainians at the same time is additional funding from Congress to be able to increase our capacity in terms of our capacity to expand production and then to also pay for the munitions themselves. Another show of hands for all of you people that believe Joe Biden and his administration understands how to work on supply and demand issues. (laughs) We saw massive failures in Biden's first two years as president. We're still seeing them, but those two years were especially nasty. 
So we're at the bottom of the first hour. I'm, I'm hurrying through. As I told you, I've got these things that I want you to I want you to hear. And I don't want to do anything to take away from Steve Baker and what he's going to bring to us at the top of this hour. But it's very important to me because it's something I am adamant that you understand. It's what kind of atmosphere are we living in as it pertains to war? Now, we here in the continental United States, we haven't seen any wars. And we're blessed in that regard. But let me say this. Well, I'm not even going to say anything. Last night, Tucker Carlson had General Doug McGregor on with him. General Doug McGregor. He's he's retired. You're going to hear when he speaks here. You're going to hear him and you'll understand how knowledgeable he is and how it would be nice to have a bunch of generals in our military right now that were as knowledgeable as he is. This is important. I'll tell you something about how important it is after you listen to this. Now, this is eight eight minutes long, which is longer than usual, but it's important you hear this today. We seem to be heading to war with Iran. Certainly the Biden administration is pushing us in that direction. What's new and interesting and ominous is that very few Republicans, the opposition party, are pushing back. Instead, some of the party's leaders are encouraging it. Here, for example, is Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina from last weekend on NBC. You said this week that the only way to keep the war from escalating is to hold Iran accountable, part of what you're talking about now, and that it might mean bombing their oil refineries. Have you had any discussions with the Biden administration about this? A, A bit. Here's my message. If Hezbollah, which is a proxy of Iran, launches a massive attack on Israel, I will consider that a threat to the, um, to, to the state of Israel, existential in nature. I will introduce a resolution in the United States Senate to allow military action by the United States in conjunction with Israel to knock Iran out of the oil business. Iran, if you escalate this war, we're coming for you. Are you effectively poised to declare war on Iran? That's very strong language. I, I am poised to use military force to destroy the source of funding for Hamas and Hezbollah. No, that's Lindsey Graham. Few others in the Republican Party will be that open about their intentions, but very few disagree with him. Certainly not in private. They agree. So what would war with Iran mean? Well, it's hard to know because virtually no one who's talking about it in public is operating from a deep interest in America's interest. Is this good for us or is it not? Former Colonel Douglas McGregor is the CEO of our country, Our Choice, and one of the first people we turn to for analysis of events like this because he is interested in what happens to the United States. He joins us now. Doug, thank you uh, for coming on. Do you think that we are moving toward war with Iran? Yes, I do. And uh, it looks like the chosen destination is indeed Armageddon. There doesn't seem to be any real appreciation for the implications for us and, and frankly, for Europe and the world, as well as the Middle East, of such action. You know, take for an example, just on the economic side, about uh, 20% of the world's oil passes through the Straits of Hormuz every month. Uh, probably 25% of liquefied natural gas. And you're talking about shutting down two to three million barrels uh, a day of oil from Iran. 
you know, this entire region is involved in the war. This is not an Iranian monopoly by any stretch of the imagination. But the point is that when we're looking at 10-year Treasury yields up over 5% and people are increasingly convinced that the Fed has lost control, the economic side of the house is catastrophe. Then when you look at the military side, you have to look at the arsenal of missiles that Iran possesses. And they can reach out 1,200 miles with great precision, very uh, high explosive conventional warheads that would do enormous damage, destroying whole city blocks in places like Haifa, Tel Aviv, even Jerusalem, though I doubt they would attack Jerusalem. The bottom line is that we need to think this through, and everyone right now is emoting. There is no thinking anywhere, as far as I can tell. The only possible exception may be, amazingly enough, Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, who came out this morning and indicated he was willing to mediate uh, the dispute between Israel and Hamas. Whether or not anyone in Washington or Israel is interested in talking, I don't know. But if we could sideline Turkey and keep Turkey out of the fight, that would ultimately help Israel enormously. So what would happen to the United States if we followed Senator Graham's advice and just began bombing critical infrastructure in Iran? Like what, what would happen then? Well, all of the bases that we have in Iraq and Syria, unfortunately, where we still have over a thousand Americans, all of those would be targeted. And this time, they would target them accurately, and this destruction would be wholesale. I would expect trouble here at home and in the United States because of the open border. Hezbollah has a very large operation in Mexico. There are no doubt many, many, many Hezbollah agents inside the United States. We can only begin to imagine the kind of trouble they could cause. The missile and space program in Iran is very, very advanced, as is their cyber warfare capability. All of these things would be brought to bear against us. But what's most important, I think, for Americans to understand is if we attack Iran on the basis of Hezbollah's alleged willingness to attack Israel if Israel invades Gaza, we will end up in a fight with Russia. Russia will not sit by quietly and watch Iran destroyed by the United States air and naval power in the region. And once Russia enters this, uh, it, it becomes much more than just a local conflict, maybe more than just a regional war. Uh, we haven't thought this through. We need to do that. And I doubt seriously at that point that the Turks would be able to stay out. The Turks are Sunni Muslims. They are the de facto leaders of the Sunni Muslim world. They have the largest armed forces in the region. They are in close proximity to Israel. They could move forces south through Syria very rapidly. And I'm sure Bashar al-Assad assuming he even survives the opening of this campaign, would not obstruct them. So, so many questions, but just to back up one click, you, you described Iran's missile arsenal, um, but Iran is a country that's been the subject of very intense sanction regime from the United States, in, increased by the last president, Donald Trump, um, but for a long time. How is Iran still such a powerful country militarily given those sanctions? It sounds like maybe they didn't work. Oh, no, I think that's, that's an important point, Tucker, and you're absolutely right. We place so much value on these sanctions and assume that they have this profound impact. Normally, sanctions harm the population in terms of lowering its standard of living 
making life more difficult for the everyday citizen, but it doesn't fundamentally alter the policy or the goals and objectives of the government. And this is something that I don't think we understand. And the same thing is true for, for Hamas and Gaza. You know, you, you want to go after Hamas. You want to destroy it. I think everyone with a sound mind is interested in the destruction of Hamas. But do you want to kill hundreds of thousands of people in order to get at Hamas? That's the question. We have the same problem in Iran. Our sanctions have not harmed the regime's ability to develop and build very, very complex and sophisticated missiles. These missiles are very accurate now. There are hundreds, if not thousands. And the long-range missiles, the 1,200-mile range theater ballistic missiles, are a very serious threat to us in the region and to Israel. And the sanctions have had no impact there. If anything, the Iranians have pulled together the best human capital in their country, the best engineers, the best thinkers, and put them to work primarily on missile technology and on cyber warfare. And that's where we stand right now. We have to expect the worst as a result if we strike Iran. How is the U.S. military, do you think, having spent your life in it, leading troops in combat and at the Pentagon, positioned to respond to war with, with Iran right now? Are we in a strong position or not, in your view? No, I don't think we're in a strong position. I think we're probably at the weakest point in uh, our recent history. Uh, I think you've got to look at the realities of new weapon systems, new capabilities. The United States Navy, if it's going to preserve its capability at sea, is probably going to be compelled to operate somewhere north and west of Sicily. If it comes within closer range, then it falls into this envelope where the Iranians can strike it. And as I said before, we have to assume the Russians will come into this. Once you move into the eastern Mediterranean, you are vulnerable to the Kinshaw missiles and other missiles, cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles that the Russians have. This makes it very difficult to fly strikes in support of the Israeli Defense Force against Hezbollah because now you're flying a very long distance. You deliver your ordinance. You have to land in Israel in order to refuel. Israel is going to operate under a hail, if not a rainstorm, of missiles and rockets, making it very, very dangerous to do so. So our naval power, while substantial, may not have the desired impact on the ground that we would like. And then finally, we have no real army anymore. The army is down to perhaps, what, 450,000? How much of that is ready to fight is open to debate. Much of it is sitting in Eastern Europe right now. We, we don't have the means to rapidly ship a large force of 80 to 100,000 troops on the ground into the region, which means that we're reliant on special forces and right now 2,000 Marines and perhaps 2,000 special forces and special operations forces. That's not going to make much of a dent. And as we've seen quite recently within the last 24 hours or so, uh, some of our special ops forces and Israeli special ops forces went into Gaza to reconnoiter, to plan for where they might want to go to free hostages and, and make an impact. And they were shot to pieces and took heavy losses, as I understand it. We stopped right there for the sake of your time. But I wanted to whet your appetite and let you know there are far more things at stake here than we think there are for different countries and obviously different citizenries that are part of these various countries. Think about it. 
Who are we talking about? You've got Ukraine. You've got Israel. You have Syria. You have Lebanon. You have Iran. You have Iraq. Not to mention the United States of America. Oh, by the way, we just learned Hezbollah and Hamas have massive buildups in infrastructure in Mexico. And oh, by the way, the Biden administration has just opened up our southern border and we are told, let me listen closely to what I'm about to say, we are told that we're safe. They lied every day. Alejandro Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary, every day for two years telling us we are in control of the border. We're in control of the border when they were purposely letting horrible people come through. Not everybody is horrible, but how do we know who they are? How do we know who is horrible? How many terrorists do we know above the 150 or so that we labeled? How many more others are there? How many are Hezbollah, Hamas, many other Islamist jihad groups How many are there that number among those and how many of those are making plans to start stuff here in the United States? Look at what happened in Europe. Do you remember Europe was shamed? Those countries in Europe, most of them, not all of them, but most of those countries were shamed several years ago into taking all of these Islamists from Northern Africa and some Muslim countries where they were having to leave And they opened up and let them come in and remember the massive crimes, criminality, and how long it took these countries to get control back. And several of these countries haven't even gotten the control back. What's this going to be for us? We don't know. Now, you need to watch that video. It was in audio format, what you just heard, of course. But as of right now, on the front page, the home page of truthnewsnet.org, truthnewsnet.org. At the top of the front page, there's a story that comes up, do we face pending Armageddon? Do we face pending Armageddon? Nothing's in that file except a little explanation uh, from me in writing, but directly below it is the full interview between Tucker Carlson and General Doug McGregor. You need to see it. You need to play it. You need to send it to everybody you know. We are nowhere near being prepared at every level of the United States. People, government, military, at every level. We are not prepared. What according to this guy, who knows? According to him, it's not just possible. It's likely this crap is coming our way. Drinking water is essential to your health. That's why you need to drink plenty of water to keep you hydrated throughout the day. Unlike power drinks or soft drinks, water is truly the only drink that can quench your thirst. It's an easy, refreshing way to keep your body healthy and strong. Freshen up today with a brisk, cool bottle of water. It's amazing. He's talking about motorcycle insurance, and people love it. Of course, they love the savings they're going to get with Geico, but it goes beyond that. You deserve to save. (laughs) 
heard that before. You deserve to save. I know. I need you to hear me. You deserve to save. I deserve to save. I mean, he has a way of making you feel seen. Bundle car and motorcycle insurance and save at geico.com. Believe in the power of friendship. Really? You guys are good. <laughs> movies right when you want them. Watch unlimited movies instantly for only nine bucks a month from Netflix. That's so cute, it's stupid. This is your home. This is your family room slash gym. The guest bedroom slash music studio. The day bed slash dog bed. The living room slash yoga shanti slash regional office. How did you guys do it? Slash classroom. And this is the basement slash panic room. Maybe what your family needs is a vacation home slash vacation home. Find yours on the Verbo app. Saying it out loud. No spin. Only the truth. Again, Dan Newman. As many of our own lawmakers are doing, people around the nation are doing, they're denying that Hamas started this whole mess. They're blaming Israel for all of this. And so let me tell you what Israel is doing about that. Since nobody believes them, what they've started doing is putting out live footage from the Hamas attack. The Israeli government screened a graphic and unedited 43-minute compilation video that shows atrocities committed by Hamas terrorists during that October 7th attack. The screening took place October 23rd at a base in Tel Aviv, was attended by foreign journalists. Israeli government spokesman Elon Levi revealed this. It was created from various sources, including body cameras worn by Hamas terrorists, vehicle dashboard cameras, social media accounts, and even some cell phone videos. Mr. Levy said in an October 22nd post on the former Twitter that showing graphic atrocities was to silence the voices of doubt who claim the events did not take place or have been exaggerated. He said, I can't believe I'm saying this, and I can't believe that we are as a country are having to do this as we work to defeat the terror organization that brutalized our people, he said. We are witnessing a Holocaust denial-like phenomenon evolving in real time as people are casting doubt on the magnitude of the atrocities that Hamas committed against our people and, in fact, recorded in order to glorify that violence. Mr. Levy said in a follow-up post he had watched the whole attack video compilation, although he wished he hadn't watched it. He said it shows instances of murdered infants, cold-blooded executions of adults and children, decapitations, and many other graphic moments. We see human ash that the world has not seen since Auschwitz. This was Hamas's October 7th massacre, he said. This is the evil we are up against. This is the evil Israel will eliminate with the total defeat and dismantling of Hamas for the sake of our people and for the sake of humanity. So far, the footage of the massacre 
It's only been seen its in entirety by journalists and other key personnel over in Israel. The audience in attendance were not allowed to record the compilation out of respect for the dead. But a roughly one-minute sample of a roadside attack on an Israeli civilian car has been released to the public and shared on social media. The Israel Defense Forces, IDF, in October 23rd posted a picture on the former Twitter with a caption detailing one horrific scene from the October 7th attack video, but said, owing to X's guidelines, they couldn't show it. The screening of October 7 attack footage has come amid renewed calls for Israel to halt its military retaliation against Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. I cannot in any way understand why people of any ilk, especially those in government here in the United States, including our president, by the way, he called for Israel at the very beginning of this, he called for Israel to stand down, as did our Secretary of State. How can you expect a nation that saw over the weekend, that first weekend, saw the elimination of over 1,500 of its citizens that were slaughtered by Hamas and then expect Israel to not retaliate. Of course, that's the way the Biden administration works. They are so decisive. Their number one doctrine coming from the White House is this. Can't we all just get along? We won't hurt you if you'll stop hurting us. Does that sound like a policy? We'll call that a Bidenism. How about that? Israel's military firmly believes Hamas could bear some responsibility for the deaths in Gaza Strip with at least 550 of the terrorist groups, approximately 7,000 rocket launches misfiring and causing casualties in their own land inside Gaza. Israel still urging Gazan civilians to evacuate, to go south of Gaza City, away from Hamas locations and hideouts. An estimated 1.2 million people have been displaced just in Gaza. Around a quarter million have also been displaced in Israel. Nobody talks about that. Hamas has been accused of blocking Palestinian civilians from leaving the war zone, along with other acts of violence against its own people. If any percentage of what you just heard is truthful, we really have problems. I can't imagine what Americans, my fellow citizens, would think and feel if that same stuff, that same philosophy comes to the United States. And it doesn't matter where it comes from immediately. We've we were told, I didn't know about it till yesterday, and you heard a part of it from General McGregor. Hamas, and especially Hezbollah, have a massive terrorist infrastructure in Mexico already today. Now, why do you think they're in Mexico? Do you think it being so close to the United States 
might have something to do with it? I mean, come on, folks. We're realists. Hey, morning, sir. Hey, Steve-O, you are live on the air. <laughs> it's always good to warn me, you know, before you put me on. Well, I was, I, mean, in, I, know. I was in the middle of uh, explaining how stupid it is, some of the things that our administration is okaying, some of the things they're not doing when we found out. I found out last night. I don't know if you were just listening. I played part of Tucker's interview with General Doug uh, McGregor, and he told us that Hamas and especially Hezbollah have huge, very formal infrastructure locations in Mexico. And here we are letting anybody who wants to come into the United States, we don't have a clue how many terrorists are here, but terrorists are going to do what terrorists do. And they hate us. The United States is their big Satan. Israel's the little Satan. And they think they can fundamentally do great work if they destroy not only Israel, but the United States. Hang on, hang on just a second. I lost you. Hang on there. Hello, hello, hello. Well, hang on, Steve-O. Somehow you got disconnected. Um, I'm going to have to call you right back. Man, I hate that when that happens. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> and uh, it did happen. Anyway, I think you get the gist of how upset I am simply because these people have no sense of doing the right thing. They're doing the politically correct thing, the thing that they think is good. And of course, you and I both know it's not good. And once again, once again, now I got you. I don't know what just happened. I don't know what just happened. But anyway, you're on the air. I apologize. Hey, Steve, uh, I hate to tell you this, but we have lost you again. Um, I'm going to have to call you right back. I hate to, this, this never happens, but it has happened. Let me, let me call you right back. Folks, I'm so sorry about this. I don't know if there's something going on Steve's end or if it's our equipment, we've never, this is brand new equipment, some of the best in the industry. And uh, it's, it, now we're connected again. Okay, let me dial Steve-O back and uh, I'm going to let you listen to the phone call. Maybe he'll know that we're going on live. It's once again not working. Let me do this. I beg your forgiveness. Let me go to break, and I'm going to reconnect with Steve 
and make sure we get this working. The verdict is in. Judge Steve Harvey is a hilariously good time. What do you think she spent the money on? Lipo and a butt job. You got as long as you need to respond to that. Judge Steve Harvey, new Tuesday on ABC. Genuine Ford Parts and Service presents A Word From Your Wallet. Are we at the gas station? Yeah, I know. I'm feeling these gas prices, too. I'm the wallet down here. Head to a Ford dealership. Why? Proper vehicle maintenance. A new air filter can save 19 cents a gallon. Correct tire inflation up to 6 cents a gallon. Wow, that sure adds up. (laughs) Fat wallets are very in right now. Right now, Motorcraft air filter replacement is just $19.95 or less. Replacing a dirty air filter can increase fuel economy by as much as 10%. Well, done. That was easy. Maybe you should listen to your wallet more often. Well, you're typically pretty quiet. Well, I didn't want to be a pain in the... Uh, 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 uh. Hurry in for the best deals we've had in years. Money-saving rebates on brakes, batteries, tires, and more. See your participating Ford dealer today. Great Shadow Legends. I mean... <laughs> you pick your champions, they're glorious, and their shields, oh, they glisten like uh, wet otters. But the bad guys, they're Lovecraftian, they're spooky, they're um, um, big. And then you go to battle, and it's like... And finally, your foe is vanquished, and that satisfaction such a primal feeling. Ooh, Download Raid Shadow Legends. Play for free. Ready to take your Jenga skills to the next level? If you are an all-star at building towers and balancing blocks, then build up the competition in new Jenga Maker. Play in teams to finish first and claim the crown. Jenga and new Jenga Maker. Reach the top of your game, each sold separately. The Speaker of the House lies. The media swear to it. The President of the Senate obstructs. The media are all over the place, but totally divorced from the truth. So let's get back to navigating this Stygian River with, again, Dan Newman. Well, the Stygian River, <laughs> we're, we're trying it. we're doing our best to navigate it. And um, even during the break, we had problems with getting Steve aboard. And so I did what everybody in, uh, everybody that has a cell phone, as a matter of fact, we learned reboot. When things don't work, just reboot and try it again. So you're listening to me rebooting to Steve. And it's not, it's not working again. I rebooted. I did everything I could do during the break. There's something going on. And I think it may be in our telephone system on this end. I don't know what to tell you, buddy. I want you don't want you on this show desperately, but I can't get you on right now. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Okay. Steve understands, and um, he said to apologize to you for him. We, he'll be with us tomorrow. We'll get this worked out. This has never happened on this show. I guess it's because we've got important things that we're talking about today. And we really are. I'm trying to think of what... I'm not even going to go back. I was going to go back to that video with General um, McGregor and Tucker Carlson. And I've already given you the key to go hear the rest of it at truthnewsnet.org. Steve's going to be back tomorrow morning. And we'll test it and have it for sure situated so we don't have this problem anymore. But he'll be back with us tomorrow morning. In the meantime, 
<laughs> Did you know the the all the stuff that about the denial of what happened in the Gaza hospital attack? Did you know that was all initiated by the New York Times? Of all places, the New York Times, that bastion of credible media. <laughs> They're the ones that first reported that it was Israeli attack on that hospital. So New York Times, hell freezes over, folks. They admitted they were wrong. Citing propaganda that proved painful for the gray lady as an uncommon step was taken to amend for pushing claims from terrorists. Those reports, those now debunked reports about Israel's responsibility for that explosion at that hospital may not have stood in the way of Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib's continued post. Oh my gosh, she's been crazy after it. But it was problematic for the editors at the New York Times. They're supposed to report only truth, right? As a result, nearly a week after backpedaling headlines brought further shame on the once exemplary paper of record, everybody for generations, that was a go-to place to get the facts, New York Times. A rare standalone editor's note was published as a mea culpa. The Times' initial accounts attributed the claim, this is a quote from the New York Times, The Times' initial accounts attributed to the claim of Israeli responsibility to those Palestinian officials and noted that the Israeli military said it was investigating the blast. However, the early versions of the coverage and the prominence it received in a headline, news alert, and social media channels all relied too heavily on claims by Hamas. Now, this is from an editor at the New York Times. Tell me why... Any credible news outlet would take the first report made by Hamas and run with it. Folks, we're a dinky little operation in comparison to the New York Times. I, as the publisher of this show, I would never take a claim told to me about any of this by anybody from Hamas until we were able to verify it and then double verified it. And I'm not making this up. That's the way real news works. This editor said, I did not make clear that those claims could not immediately be verified. The report left readers with an incorrect impression. You lied, buddy. But what we know now, and we know how credible the account was not. So dancing around their own willingness to run a pro-Hamas angle in the wake of the slaughter of more than 1,400 people by these terrorists, the newspaper described a readily changed headline by stating it this way, quote, the Times continued to update its coverage as more information became available, reporting the disputed claims of responsibility and noting that the death toll might be lower than initially reported. Within two hours, now this is this is the editor. He's stating this later. Within two hours, the headline and other text at the top of the website reflected the scope of the explosion and the dispute over responsibility. Never said it was Gaza's fault. One more little paragraph. 
he said. In practice, these changes played out as ever-softening pander to the terrorist narrative that began as Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. It became at least 500 dead and strike on Gaza hospital, Palestinians say, and would wind up as at least 500 dead in blast at Gaza hospital, Palestinians say. Here's the kicker. Every one of those headlines, every one of them, even those that I just gave to you after the, the New York Times changed the headline, every one of them is still false. There aren't, there weren't 500 people killed in that hospital. And the report was they were in the hospital. The dadgum rocket, the Hamas rocket, landed in the parking lot. And there's no crater anywhere that says otherwise. It exploded. It didn't hit anybody or anything. The explosion of the fuel that was in the rocket killed some people. We don't even have an accurate number now. And oh, by the way, the New York Times, they decided not to put their news number of people that actually died and numbers wounded in that attack. And look at what uproar and furor around the world has happened from this New York Times story. That's when all the uproar started. That's when all the demonstrations and even some horrible situations that were right on the border of, if not actually, riots in several places around the world. Do you think there may be some purposeful reason for reporting on that the way that they did and when they did? I'm just asking. I'm just wondering. Something I wanted to uh, give to you and talk to you about before Steve came on, and I was rushing to get this story in before Steve got here. It's not a good thing that Steve got. You don't understand how angry it makes me when we have any segment of the show go wrong because I'm the producer, and uh, we've never had any kind of bad connection by the incoming phones and the outgoing phones in our studio equipment, but apparently there's a glitch there, and I can't reboot the, and if you've got any electrical knowledge, you understand this. While we're live on the show, I can't reboot the console from which is the source of every piece of anything that we've put out here. But one story that I wanted to bring to you before Steve came on was actually words directly from one of two Israeli hostages that was released yesterday. I can't pronounce their their names. Yosheved Leifetz, aged 85, was taken from Israel October 7th along her 83-year-old husband, Oded. He, by the way, is still being held inside the Gaza Strip. Think about that. She's 85, he's 83. She has no idea what his status is right now. She said civilians beat her once she was brought into Gaza before being moved into an extensive tunnel system where Hamas did provide she and other hostages with some medicine and hygiene supplies. 
My mom is telling the horrific stories. She's saying that many, many people, a swarm of people came through that fence. This is her daughter speaking to reporters in Tel Aviv yesterday, describing the moments in which her mother saw the Hamas militants approaching. My mom is saying she was taken on the back of a motorbike with her body, with her legs on one side and her head on the other side, the daughter said that she was taken through the plow fields with men in front on one side and men behind her, kind of thrown across a saddle on a horse like they used to bring people when they had passed away back in our wild, wild west. She was on a motorcycle draped across. She also said how her mother was brought into a huge network of tunnels underneath Gaza, looked like a spider web. Yoshevet herself said people assigned to guard her had told us they are people who believe in the Koran and wouldn't hurt us, also noting how she and other hostages were fed one meal a day of cheese and cucumber. Prior to their capture from their home and near, that's a kibitz, a kibitz, 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 I can't even pronounce it, kibitz, I believe. That's near the Israel-Gaza border. Yoshevet and her husband were activists who helped sick Gazans receive medical care in Israel. They are human rights activists. This is her grandson, Daniel Livitz, speaking. And they've been activists for their entire lives. For more than a decade, he told us, they took sick Palestinians from the Gaza Strip, not from the West Bank, from the Gaza Strip, each week from the Erez border to the hospitals in Israel to get treatment for their disease, for cancer, for anything. There's no need to even comment about that stuff. It speaks for itself. It's uncanny that we're hearing these stories and that it it really happened. So we do have a few things back domestically that we need to talk about. And one thing I think we need to go into, I didn't know if we were going to have time to do this. Yesterday, you remember John Ratcliffe. John Ratcliffe is now a congressman from Texas before he served as the director of national intelligence. He's one of those guys, when he was in that position at the DNI, Department of National Intelligence, he was involved in everything. He and other intelligence department agency heads, they knew where every bit of wrongdoing really originated, what it was, how it happened, who did it. They knew who were the responsible parties and all that. So he saw a lot of things, and of course, because of his position, he couldn't talk about a lot of them. Some of them he still can't talk about. But late yesterday, he spoke with Kudlow on Fox News. I like Kudlow, Larry Kudlow. I like him a lot. He is an older guy, and that means he's really old. I'm 70, so for somebody being an older guy, they got to be pretty old. Larry Kudlow is, but he works hard. He's a great guy. He has a great ability to find and ferret out facts and things. And one thing that I think every one of us, not just conservatives in our nation, but every American wants to know what in the heck is going on 
with our president and not doing anything, not speaking any kind of outrage against what happened in Hamas, in Gaza. I mean, folks were beheaded. Americans were beheaded. And Joe Biden has done nothing. You know, I, I don't even understand what President Biden was saying today. He wants a ceasefire and then we'll talk. And then he was asked the other day, it was a presser as he getting on the airplane, uh, are you holding back the uh, IDF uh, ground invasion? And he's, you want him to wait? He said yes, and then the White House walked it back. John Radcliffe, uh, this is a war, and including, as you know, Iran and its puppets are attacking American, uh, our embassy, our ships at sea. This is war. They took Americans hostage. They've killed Americans. When will there be some fight back from Biden? Well, Larry, you know, you made me listen to John Kirby a press conference a little while ago, and it sounded like he was reading from some instruction manual about all of the things that Iran was doing to help Hamas and Hezbollah. And as you correctly pointed out, um, you know, the uh, 1,300 Israelis, 1,400 Israelis were, were killed, but 32 Americans now. And, the, and so that your viewers understand, the Americans weren't uh, killed in some uh, kinder or gentler manner. Mm. Americans were beheaded. Mm. Americans were raped. Mm. Americans were stabbed, shot. All of that uh, has taken place, and there's no outrage from this administration. And, you know, I will, I will quibble with the great Larry Kudlow a little bit. Um, you have given credit, but you've given too much credit to the Biden administration for what they've done in the last two and a half weeks. Larry, um, uh, I'm not focused on the last two and a half weeks. I'm more concerned about the last two and a half years. A guy should only get so much credit for fighting a fire that he started. And this goes to, to the heart of the failure of this Iranian policy for two and a half years that really created the circumstances on the ground. Larry, these things weren't happening when you and I were in the White House. They weren't happening when Donald Trump was there because Iran couldn't afford to do these things. Iran was broke, therefore Hamas was broke, and Hezbollah was broke. They weren't planning these uh, operations. And that, that's not my opinion, Larry. That's what our own intercepted communications about what the Iranians were telling each other. That's also what foreign exchange reserves were reflecting about uh, Iranian assets. And so all of this has taken place because of the reversal by the Biden administration two and a half years ago. And, you know, to your point about the ceasefire, Larry, the very first statement, the first tweet that came out of this administration was by Anthony Blinken uh, on October 7th calling for a ceasefire, mm. which he then later withdrew. Mm. The first tweet put out by any agency within the Biden administration was the U.S. administration on Palestinian affairs, which called for a ceasefire. Uh, Joe Biden has made comments about, you know, uh, a ceasefire, and then they've had to walk it back or explain that he misheard the question. They've had a schizophrenic policy here. The reason, Larry, that they're so concerned is that as this thing escalates, the, the inevitable analysis is how did this happen and how was Iran able to orchestrate what might become a regional war or even a world war? And the answer is going to be because of Biden's policies towards Iran for the last two and a half years. Well, the inconvenient fact, as you say, uh, I will stand partially corrected. I mean, some statements are better than no <laughs> statements, but I, the big picture, you're 100% right. Uh, the inconvenient fact is that Biden has appeased Iran, and uh, Iran is unappeasable. 
and there has been um, more appeasement and no action. And so the sanctions have basically been lifted no matter what they say. So I'm saying to you, John Radcliffe, if Biden were serious, let's take Kirby. Kirby's reading this, as you say, this manual. Somebody gave him a statement. So they want to sound tough. It was like the first acknowledgement I've really heard that Iran is the puppeteer and the financier, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not going to do anything about it. Uh, Mitch McConnell, okay, not the biggest right-wing hawk in the, in the group, but Mitch McConnell wrote in the Wall Street Journal last week, and I quoted him, gave him a tip, said, look, we should be interdicting or, and or impounding Iranian ships that are carrying oil to China and Lord knows where, that are carrying drones to Russia, that are developing the oil revenues and the foreign exchange reserves that you just cited a moment ago, a point that I've made many times. We should be impounding this right now, right now, because we are now saying Iran is behind this. What are we going to do about it? Let's go back and, I mean, you've got, you know, uh, senators saying this on both sides of the aisle. So where's the administration? Well, Larry, uh, you know, uh, as you know, uh, further sanctions dropped this week. The U.N. Security Council resolution against Iran's ability to test ballistic missiles, to trade ballistic missiles, to develop nuclear defense systems and offensive systems were all allowed to lapse by the United States. Uh, you know, and they had the ability to stop that. They had the ability to call for a snack, snapback of that. And they didn't do it because their stated reason is there a, there's a fear of escalation. They're, they're, they're afraid of uh, Iran. You're right. What worked in the Biden administration, or I mean, what worked in the Trump administration can work in the Biden administration. It was a combination of lethal force taken against uh, the likes of the, you know, their top general, Qasem Soleimani, coupled with crippling sanctions that you, Larry Kudlow, helped develop and implement. And that made Iran poorer, weaker, less influential, and incapable of doing the things that they're doing right now. Do you catch the irony in what you heard from those two, Larry Kudlow and John Ratcliffe? The irony is they are just like me in this one regard, and probably most of you. What the heck is Joe Biden thinking? Why is he doing nothing, basically doing nothing except going to Congress and asking for more money, four times more of that money that he wants is going to Ukraine than is going to Israel? I can't reconcile that in any way. I can't, especially looking in the rearview mirror and also looking at who else is involved in this, maybe not physically there, but are supporting this nation already and have been for over a year, and that would be Ukraine. Four times more money in this request going to Ukraine than is going to Israel when Israeli people are being slaughtered, innocents, not just people in the military, but just innocent civilians are being slaughtered, some of them, many of them, in the most egregious ways possible. And Joe Biden, he wants us to slow down. He wants Israel to slow down. It makes me ask this question. I'd love to hear an answer to this. If this happened to the United States of America, in the United States of America, 
what would our president do? Would he sit back and wait for something to happen? Or would he go after those that came here and did the similar things that Hamas has done to Israelis? And even Gaza civilians. I don't have a warm and fuzzy about that right now. I don't know about you. But if we can't believe our leaders will keep us safe. Now, that's a big one to think about in reference to President Biden. Why is that? What kind of evidence do we have that Joe Biden is willing to go to the mat for Americans anytime anybody comes here and tries to do something to us or comes here and break the law? If you look at the landscape of everything happening In the United States, continental United States, during Joe Biden's presidency, you don't see any example of this commander-in-chief holding anybody accountable for their wrongdoing. Now, what they have done aggressively is they've gone after, internally, people like you and me, and they've weaponized the Department of Justice against people like you and me, and what is our sin? What is our lawlessness? Because we had the kahunas to reach out and express our concerns about the goings-on of the election in 2020 and 2022's election. We started asking questions. We started seeing things. Evidence appeared in bundles. I challenge you, if you're questioning what I'm saying here, watch the documentary 2,000 Mules. You can find it online. It is a real documentary with tons of real evidence that millions of Americans were talking about. I'll never forget it when I came out of the theater I actually went up to a couple of people and asked me to give their opinions. I recorded several of them. I played one from a guy who was very cautious when I asked him what he thought about the election and any alleged wrongdoing in the election after watching the movie. And he would not come out because I was in media. He had no idea who I was. I told him he's not a listener He's not a subscriber to TNN, so he doesn't read our stories. He does now, but he didn't then. And he was very careful. You know why? Because that came out at a time when it was still okay to express what we felt. You can't do that in the United States of America now. You can't do it in Joe Biden's America. You can't do it. In Christopher Ray, FBI Director's America. You can't do it in Merrick Garland, Attorney General. Can't do it in his United States of America. Because on President Biden's watch, whoever they are, whoever the ones are that are running our government, they've not only made it okay to weaponize their tools in the FBI and the Department of Justice against anybody that speaks against them or anything that happened on their watch in government, which would include those elections. If you talk about it, 
we're going to cancel you. We're going to come after you and attack you. Or the January 6th insurrection, they tried to overthrow our government. You can't talk about it anymore. You hear Steve Baker with us every Tuesday, with the exception of this Tuesday, because of our problems mechanically here at the studio. But nevertheless, Steve was right in the middle of it. And he, three years later, (laughs) he faces every day the possibility he's been given notice by the FBI to expect him to be indicted because he was there taking videos. And you know the charge that they've told him they're considering charging him with? RICO. R-I-C-O. You know what that is? Racketeering. Now, listen to the basis, how they could come up, how this Department of Justice, these FBI investigators, how they came up with charging Steve with racketeering. Now, what is racketeering? That's when somebody illegally, in advance, commits a crime that was carried out over a period of time and involved people in other countries. Now, wait a minute. Steve Steve lives in North Carolina. I don't even know if Steve's ever been overseas. I've never asked him, never thought about it. I'm sure he has. I'm sure his band He's a professional musician. I'm sure they've been overseas. I don't know. But how would him being in Washington, D.C. with his video camera shooting videos that day, how would that turn into a racketeering federal charge that if it was proven, he could be in prison for 20-plus years? You know how they piece that together? In the aftermath, of January 6th when he shot those videos and they first started being seen around the nation and even overseas, these news agencies were reaching out to him wanting the use of his videos. And as any journalist does, they're going to protect their content that they produced in the way of news in writing or in video or audio. And he licensed those videos to multiple overseas organizations, news organizations, BBC, some of the biggest cities around the world, news agencies within those cities and countries. And, of course, he got paid for that. So the FBI has taken that scenario that I just gave you, and they've come up with a potential charge of Steve Baker of racketeering because... To be convicted of racketeering under U.S. law, it has to be proven that you, before the event even took place, before you did anything about it, you had to be part of a conspiracy with foreigners to put it together and make it happen. So the allegation is he, in advance of January 6th, He coordinated going to Washington, D.C., coordinated being he had to know it was going to happen or he wouldn't have gone, right? He was being there for the express purpose of shooting these videos and then selling those videos usage to foreign entities. 
Just think about how many hundreds of other Americans are suffering with that mentality right now. How many fellow Americans in big towns, little towns, cities, big cities, little cities across America are scared to death to even go to movies to talk about 2,000 mules. Don't even talk about the potential of voting fraud. You don't even hear anybody talking about it. You know why? We've watched around the nation as our Department of Justice and FBI have purposely gone after dissenting people from the political narrative of the day. There's no voter fraud. Nothing happened. Well, there were some votes, a few of them over here and a few of them over there, but we know factually there weren't enough to change the outcome. My question to you is, this is the United States of America, right? This is where we have laws, right? We have a U.S. Constitution, the greatest, the longest-lasting Constitution of any country on earth. That doesn't come from just Dan Newman. Experts around the world have proclaimed that to be fact for decades. When anybody that goes into the federal government does, if they're appointed, if they applied for a job, if they're a bureaucrat and they get hired in an agency, or if they're a person that was elected to be a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, the House, uh, the U.S. Senate, also president, vice president, any appointed, any confirmed person, they swear an oath to protect and defend the United States of America and to support the Constitution, which is the laws, the structure that makes this whole thing happen. We look around the world and we see now in our own country, our government is not only allowing millions of people to come across our southern border with no chokes, no preparation, no background investigation, not even knowing who these people are. All we know is what they tell us. Do you know that there is a whole system put together on the Mexico side of our southern border where when you come there, you're going to work with cartels because they control the southern border ruthlessly. They'll slaughter you. And everybody that's coming across, you know they control it. You're going to deal with them. And one thing they make you do is destroy all of the identity papers, paperwork, anything that proves where you're coming from. Now, why would they do that? If people are coming into the United States to do good things, to live here legally, they don't hide who they are. How many people number among those 4 million, 6 million? How many do you think have actually come in since Joe Biden took office? And I heard a little tidbit at 6 a.m. this morning. It came to light that Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, has been illegally, listen to this, contacting immigrants, illegal immigrants that came into the United States when Donald Trump was president, and they were constitutionally, they were deported and sent back to the nation where they came from 
Listen to what Mayorkas is doing. They're finding those people. They're contacting those people. And they're paying for those people to fly back to the United States. Any of that legal? None of it is. Not one thing is. Every illegal alien that's in the United States is here illegally. That would be why they're called illegal immigrants, right? Anybody that assists them to come here is breaking federal law. They're illegal. Now, wait a minute. Joe Biden and his policies, his Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, Christopher Wray, FBI Director, they're not going after, they're not investigating, they're not prosecuting these people that are breaking federal laws, and they're not prosecuting the people that are opening the doors for them to come in, which they too are breaking laws. So we shouldn't expect this administration, we shouldn't expect Joe Biden, we shouldn't expect the Vice President, Kamala Harris, anybody in the Biden cabinet, we shouldn't expect Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, Christopher Wray, the FBI, anybody that works for them, we shouldn't expect them to do something opposite of what their leaders are doing. If you're honest, if you're an American, you don't want to work for somebody that is suborning illegality every day you go to work, which is what they're all doing. Oh, and by the way, let me just bring this thing up before we take our final break of the show. What do you think is going to happen at the end of all of this? Where is this going to go? Well, if you listen to Democrats, and not just those in Congress, and not just those in the White House, but if you listen to rank-and-file Democrats around the nation, they've been convinced that what is happening in the purview and the responsibility of this Democrat Party, that that is okay. That is is a representative of true democracy. Now, true democracy, it works on a plan, a structure. And we have that in place. Our forefathers manipulated the term pure democracy when they wrote the Constitution. They passed it, and they implemented it, and put it in place 240 years ago. And what did they name it? A representative republic that works on a democratic process with the majority making the choices. The majority, not of the lawmakers, but of the American people. We the people. According to the Constitution, this government belongs to we the people. And those people in government, they don't work for themselves If you're somebody in the U.S. government working, you don't work for Joe Biden. You all work for the people of America. We, the people. Now, by definition, by definition, anybody that supports, perpetuates, creates, enters into, and does anything opposite those principles in the U.S. Constitution is breaking federal law and being by definition, listen, 
anti-democratic. How many times, how many Democrats in office, how many people campaigning, how many people in news media, how many point their fingers at Donald Trump and say, if he gets back in office, he's going to destroy U.S. democracy when they're doing it right now and they want Americans to believe the way it's going is the definition of democracy. It's the antithesis to what democracy by definition is. Is that okay with you? I don't know many of you specifically. I know some of you and I know that that's not. You're for the rule of law, not just promise to abide by the rule of law, but in your capacity, you support the rule of law. You don't break the law. You expect others to do the same, abide by the rule of law. These people, they laugh at the rule of law. Alejandro Mayorkas, he brags about it. He gets busted every few days breaking more laws other than just suborning these people coming into the United States illegally every day. Joe Biden's up to his eyeballs in legal trouble, and he thinks it's okay because of who he is. He doesn't have to mind the laws. He doesn't have to enforce the laws on anybody that he doesn't want to. He won't. But everybody else, red, white, blue, flag-waving conservatives, oh, go get them. Go get them, Christopher Ray. Take the FBI. Go after them. Give everybody else, you know, the ones that are Democrats. Give them a pass. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion, smoky barbecue. Cheddar, sour cream, salt, and vinegar, too. You sample them all because the crisp is so good on your left your wallet at home but now you have a new best friend the many flavors of lay's chips one taste and you're in love lowe's knows you're a craftsman guy you have a lot of tools tools for everything you've done around the house but there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of Craftsman. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle... Snuggle... I am so out of here. Wait. Come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. How hard is it to unlock your car? Not hard. How hard is it to shut your car door? Not hard. How hard is it to start your car? Not hard. How hard is it to put your seatbelt on? People are still dying in car accidents because they were not wearing a seatbelt. 
which is stupid because it's not that hard. Smarten up, buckle up. Think road safety. A message from the Government of South Australia. In a world of fake news, the truth will out. Truthnewsnet.org. Dan Newman. Truth. That's one thing to know what it is. It's another thing to present it, embrace it, support it. And if you're in office, demand that others that are beneath you that you represent, like, you know, American citizens and taxpayers and legal immigrants, you got to abide by the rule of law. You got to do it. Republican lawmakers led by Oklahoma Representative Josh Burkeen, they're trying, and I can't believe we even have to bring this up and talk about it. They're begging the Biden administration to not bring Palestinian refugees into the U.S., kind of like they did in the aftermath of Afghanistan. Democrat New York Representative Jamal Bowman. Now, where do I know that name from? Well, he's the guy that pulled the uh, fire alarm (laughs) in Congress to try to keep them from voting. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Anyway, Jamal Bowman has requested that we, the United States, take in Palestinian refugees. Eh, We're going to do this right after Hamas terrorists infiltrated Israel October 7th, killing, kidnapping, raping hundreds of civilians. But they're good people. We just need to let them come to a place and live. And oh, by the way, we'll just pick up on what Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas have been doing. They don't have to be vetted. We don't have to know who they are. They're good people. They're citizens of the world. So we just let them in because they need a place to build a better life for themselves. Reminds me of the story of the rock climber. I know some of you have heard it twice or three times. I'm going to say it again. It's just like the rock climber works his butt off climbing a sheer face of a mountain. I mean, it's straight up. Struggles, works about half a day, and he gets to a place about two-thirds up where there's a crevice. He crawls out on the crevice to rest for a little bit, and he happens to look over in the corner, and there's a rattlesnake coiled up there, a big one. And he recoils back, looking at that snake, and the snake talked to him and said, Mr., look, I'm going to die if I stay here. Would you help me? And the guy said, I'm not going to help you. And the snake said, look, you got to help me or I'm going to die. I can't get anything to eat. I have no water. I'm going to die. And the rock climber said, if I picked you up and took you up to the top, you'd bite me. I'm not going to take you. And the snake looked at him and said, please, mister, I'm going to die. I promise I won't bite you. Very hesitantly, the rock climber said, okay. And he picked the snake up and called him around his neck and then put his equipment back on and started climbing this last third of this mountain. And it was a a tough going. But after a couple of hours, they got to the top, and just as the rock climber reached up to pull himself and the snake up on the edge of that sheer cliff wall, the snake reached out and bought him, just bit him right at the top. And, of course, it shocked the rock climber, they both fell. And as they were falling to their death, the rock climber looked at the snake and he said, 
Why did you bite me? You promised you wouldn't, and look, we're both falling to our deaths. Why did you do that? And the snake looked at him and said, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. I'm not saying all Palestinian refugees are snakes, but which ones among them are? And which ones among them are just good people trying to make a better life for themselves? Look at the at least six, maybe eight million people on Joe Biden's watch that have come across our southern border. How many of those do we know? Have we vetted? Did we find out who they were? And why, oh why, were they not put through a very strict, egregious citizenship, immigration policy, questionnaire process or whatever to make sure they're not snakes? Why would they do that? I've asked that for four years now. I'm getting no answer. None whatsoever. The Republicans requested that Biden ask Egypt to take in Palestinian refugees and not abuse his authority but bring in foreign populations. That's according to the letter, which is signed by Representatives Jeff Duncan of South Carolina, Andy Ogles of Tennessee, and Clay Higgins of Louisiana. Clay Higgins, that ought to ring a bell in your heart. You remember years ago, they had a bunch of public service announcements, and it was a a spot with a sheriff standing in front and behind him were lines of cars and cars, cop cars, standing beside every one of these cop cars was one of his deputies in his police force, and he basically was telling anybody and everybody If you come into our parish in Louisiana, we're going to make you abide by the rule of law. And if you don't, you're going to jail. Don't test us, Clay Higgins. He was so good at protecting his little town in St. Landry Parish, South Louisiana, that the people in his district sent him to Congress. So I can tell you, you obviously know, he would sign this, this letter. In light of recent news that members of your party are encouraging Palestinians to be paroled into the U.S. following Hamas's attack on innocent Israelis October 7th, we write to you, Mr. President, we write to you to remind the administration that no authority exists to grant categorical parole, and we're deeply opposed to any potential attempts to parole into the U.S. Palestinians en masse following Israel's counteroffensive against Hamas in Gaza. Now, that makes sense to me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with expecting anybody that is in leadership in government to do the right thing. What's the right thing? The legal thing. Given concerns of terror attacks in our homeland, it's important as ever that matters are not made worse by attempting parole of Palestinians into our country. This should be obvious considering the DHSOIG report of Operation Allies Refuge, which found your claim false that Afghans paroled by your administration already completed extensive background checks, and that information from many Afghan refugees like name, date, and birth, identification number, and travel document data was incorrect, incomplete, or totally missing. Two former senior Homeland Security officials, Chad Wolf and Mark Morgan, recently 
reported that the U.S. doesn't have sufficient intelligence sharing with Hamas to vet refugees for terrorism ties. Approximately 57% of people who live in Gaza maintain an opinion of Hamas that is at least somewhat positive. Now that's according to a recent poll from the Washington Institute. That's over here. At this critical time, our nation must remain committed to defending our homeland. We remind you that you do not have the authority to grant parole in mass as specified under existing U.S. law. We oppose any efforts to parole into the U.S. any Palestinians from Gaza. That's in the letter. Doesn't that make good sense? Am I, am I out on the edge of discussing this this way? How can we get past in our conversations about what we should do in the United States, what we shouldn't do in the United States, and what we should and shouldn't do regarding all of the people in other countries around the world? Do you know that there are laws on the books Many of those laws have been there for decades, some of them for more than a century. And the process that our forefathers built into the structure of legality in the United States, if there is a law that is on the books, federal, state, or local, the people of those countries, states, and counties or parishes for Louisiana, what they do is in an election, they bring people in that are like-minded on those issues, and they're chosen by the majority of voters. And if those people or if those laws aren't passed, they're not given authority or powers to be in government, or those laws that want to be laws, they're not enacted. Why? Because the majority of the people feel that way. That applies more than ever, more than any other thing to the people that work in the U.S. Congress and either House or Senate and those that work at the White House. These are the people that are responsible for supporting the Constitution of the United States, and the rule of law that is put in it. The rule of law encompasses federal, state, local, all of it in. If you don't like the laws that are there, you can't, you don't have any arbitrary power to ignore them or to change the enforcement principles that are embedded in the laws that were passed by legally elected representatives at the federal state, and local level. If you don't like them, go forward. Start politicking. I mean really doing the right way to convince others that you got a better way. And then what happens? It becomes law. You change it. Until then, you keep trucking. So sorry about Steve Baker. We'll get it fixed. He'll be back with us tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. See you then. Baby, I'm a want you Baby, I'm a need you You're the only one I care enough to hurt about Maybe I'm a crazy But I just can't live without
mutual loving and affection Giving me direction Like a guiding light to help me through my darkest hour Lately I'm a-praying That you'll always be a-staying beside me Used to be my life was just emotions passing by Feeling all the while and never really knowing why Lately I'm a-praying You'll always be a staying beside me Used to be my life was just emotions Baby, I'm gonna need you 